We have another review, big rule changes coming in the Pioneer League, and breaking news as we record right now. All of this and more on this week's episode of the Indie Bar Report Podcast. Hey, all right, we are back again, episode number 206 of the Indie Bar Report Podcast. I'm Nick, he's Will. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to get to, which is kind of surprising for the middle of February, but here we are. As far as the offseason is gone, Nick, to be honest with you, and maybe this offseason more so than past ones, but it seems like there hasn't been as many kind of dead, complete dead news weeks. Yeah. Um, and there's always been stuff to talk about, so uh, so thankful for that. Thank, thankful for that, certainly. And uh, this week's no exception. And another Atlantic League review as well. Yeah, actually, it's a pretty decent, like, weighty week from the Atlantic League. That's two weeks in a row. I'm, I'm kind of surprised, honestly. They've been riding a bit of a hot streak lately. Uh, clearly, they are uh, they're taking something to heart. That's definitely what's happening there. Or uh, it's just we're getting lucky. But either way, yeah, the review is going to be great. We got breaking news out of the Atlantic League as we record this hour at about 10.50 in the morning on Friday. Which is nice to see for once that we are, you know, getting ahead of the news releases before uh, before we record. But either way, I suppose we might as well just get right into the news. We'll make you wait on the Atlantic League news for a little bit because we got to start in the... Frontier League because we have a little bit of news coming out of New Jersey. That is the Hinch Club Stadium news. If you've seen on Twitter, you would know that we kind of got a sneak peek at the dimensions and the layout of this field. And it is extremely uh, interesting, I think is one way to put it. Likewise, the the quality of the turf is an interesting uh, look, if you look at the Hinchcliffe uh, official Twitter, they posted a video with it, and you could take a look at it for yourself. But you could kind of, I don't want to say it looks cheap, but it doesn't look great, uh, admittedly. And more than that, when you start going on to, uh, I believe it's Dan Malley, who first posted the pictures of the stadium and then tagged us and Ryan in it too, you start to really look at this thing and... It's looking like a very interesting baseball field setup, I'll say that much. I mean, you have what's very much in play in foul grounds, a sand pit, it would appear. And this, the dimensions and the layout are extremely odd. This isn't even like a polo grounds type of odd. This is just like a you're putting a baseball field the wrong way kind of odd. And that is newsworthy just because of the way it looks. Yeah, and of course, it, it's hard, I guess, like uh, in the show notes, it's probably, or even on Twitter, uh, the the best, probably the best way to look is, you know, trying to describe it in a audio format, as we've said many times, is not the easiest. But uh, here's the thing, and here's why I come out on it. I understand people aren't happy with it. However, I, I think the important to remember two things. One, it's February 17th, mm-hmm. uh, so a lot of time still. But I think the other thing is, is hey, it's supposed to. It's not supposed to look like a normal field. It's not. That's not. Yeah. That is. That is not the, what the purpose of redesigning Hinchcliffe Field was for. It was constructed. Well, I guess it wasn't technically constructed or re, or built from the ground up. But I'm saying like it, yeah. it's made to look like 
how it was how not exactly of course how it looked when it was a Negro League stadium, but uh, but kind of close to it. And listen, there's certain. I think the sand pit is a is a problem for me. I don't know if that's a long jump. I, I honestly have no idea what it is. I think that is definitely a, definitely an issue. But I think some of the outrage about the field is a little bit misguided because I think, uh, and yeah, it's very interesting and not no, not like a normal minor league baseball field or an independent league baseball field. Yeah, but that's kind of the point. So how it how it actually is going to play. I don't know. We'll have we'll have to see on that. As long as the turf though is in is in decent shape and the dimensions, the literal dimensions aren't like absolutely like insanity. I I think it, it's okay to have a little. Uh, I think it's okay to have to make it a little bit unique or even a lot unique because at the end of the day that that's the idea of this. It's not supposed to be a just a regular old minor league ballpark on the site on the former site of Finchcliffe Stadium. No, it's supposed to it's supposed to essentially bring you back uh, to when it was um to when it was a Negro League stadium uh, with obvious improvements on the field and such. So I, I think it being unique is good. Uh, I'm interested to see the last bit of details when they get ironed out, but it's, it's certainly an interesting look to say the least, but I'm kind of intrigued by it. You know, that's a very good point that you bring up, that it is supposed to be, the stadium's supposed to be rehabilitated to its former state. Obviously with, you know, material upgrades, and I imagine some light amenity upgrades, things of that nature, you know, generally speaking, though, it's trying to get back to where it was when it was being used on a regular basis. Plus, it's also not explicitly a baseball primary facility. It is supposed to be a multi-sport facility. It was built as such when it was originally constructed you know many 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 years ago so putting any sort of a baseball setup in here is going to be kind of awkward and i think that's a very good point something to keep in mind the only thing i'm going to say though is when you look at it especially in the first picture we see we're looking at it from home plate out so Again, it looks like a real short distance. I don't love the two lines that are, you know, running through it. I think those are just something else. They're not permanently painted lines. You can kind of tell because the one that cuts through the middle of the screen, you can see this. It kind of comes up. So I think it's just like a hose or something like that. But even still, it's not like I I understand why people are not happy about this because this does not look great. And you have the track immediately behind where home plate's going to be. And that's not great. The sand pit is something that's a problem. And I, I, I agree with you. I don't really know what that's for. Because you can tell it's surrounded by stone. So I just can't imagine using a long jump using stone for that. That just seems like it's... Uh, that would not be comfy. Yeah. Like, I just feel like if you either miss a jump or if you somehow go long or you mess it up or you slide while you're in the sand... It feels like there, there's an injury risk there. Uh, I just, I don't know about that, but any case, yeah. Like again, I, I agree with you. I want to see what the dimensions are, but from the way it's set up, it feels like if you hit anything in the left field, it's just gonna run for days. So unless you're gonna do one of those crappy portable white fences high schools use, which would just look real amateur hour, I don't know what their solution is to that. Uh, and likewise with the right field, it's um, it's very short. 
I mean, I, I'm looking at this thing, home plate to bleacher. How far would you say that is? I, I don't think it's much more than 260, to be honest with you. I don't know. It's it's always it's hard to eyeball it. Um, it's, it's yeah, it's it's hard for me to eyeball it. I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's 300, but I don't. Yeah. It, it's again, it's hard to eyeball it. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but I it's definitely short. But you know, we've seen 300 foot porches uh, in indie ball before. We yeah. have not seen like the, the you could I could point out multiple examples of that. We're talking. Uh, of course, the arch nemesis in York, uh, the right field porch in Lancaster, uh, and th- there's other ones too. Fourth corners right. in Rockland. <laughs> yes, but yep, Rockland exactly. That's the one. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that, that I couldn't get out. But uh, so we've seen 300 feet. We have not seen less than that. I don't know what the fences are going to be like, how high, or I, I think it's just it's just too early to have a major freak out about it. But I think uh, if now if it is if if it ends up being the what what you're eyeballing, Nick, it's 260. All right, that's insane, and we're there has to be a bigger discussion there. But uh, I think that I don't know if it, if you can get to 300, then it's similar to what I mean. I mean, Rockland is 300 feet and like a fence that's like three foot high. So to be honest with you, it wouldn't even be the most ridiculous portion in the league. Uh, not even in the division when you get down to it. Exactly. Not even in not even in the division. So I'd, I'd say let's wait more yeah. time on it, but it is it is good to get a look. And um, and again, it is Inchcliffe Stadium is not supposed to look like a normal stadium. So I, I think the fact that it's unique is a good thing for now, unless there's details that come out that are that really start to place some doubts in people's minds, but we'll see about that. Yeah, as long as it's kept within reason, I suppose it's not really a problem. It's just something that I think is not what we were expecting when uh, everything first came out, but seeing it, I think it's a little bit more jarring. That said, though, you're right. There is still a lot of time. We have three months until professional baseball is played there. I think about the same amount of time. I think it's a slightly under three months before that Johnny Briggs classic is there. So it'll be interesting to see how it winds up turning out. Obviously, again, uh, it is a multi-sport facility, not a baseball facility. So that's something that also has to be kept in mind there. But uh, on that note, we do have other things to get to today. And we're going to start to get to them by going to the Pioneer League uh, next, which is the Pioneer League announced some new rules the other day. It's nothing really that we haven't seen before. They add the pitch collecting. They add the shift change rule. They're going to chalk out the shift lines as well. Uh, so that means your second base and first baseman have to be on one side of the line and your shortstop and your third baseman got to be on the, on the other side of the line. It's the same shift where we saw in the Atlantic League, the same shift where we talked about last week. That's just in the Pioneer League now as far as the pitch clock goes. I believe this is the same times, but we'll go through them real quick just to you know reiterate them. Uh, 14 seconds for a pitcher to throw the ball with no runners on. 18 seconds with runners. 8 seconds if a batter is in the box. And then it's a 30 seconds between batters. So getting one from the on-deck circle into the batter's box. And then the mound visits are limited to 30 seconds each. Inning break and pitching changes are limited to 2 minutes and 15 seconds. Obviously... Uh, this is just because Major League Baseball just put it in, and this is going to kind of become a common theme when Major League Baseball adopts something. It kind of is going to have a trickle-down effect throughout every other level because, I mean, again, the goal here in indie ball is to get your players to Major League Ball, and that can only be possible if you're kind of using the same rules. 
see the Atlantic League. Um, every game length last year for the Pioneer League 2 is 3 hours and 20 minutes long. I do remember them being a little bit longer. So hopefully it will cut the time length down. So uh, yeah, that's the, that's the rule change over in the Pioneer League. Yeah, so I I've been you know pretty clear about I, that I love the pitch clock. I think it's an awesome idea, uh, and it is so necessary because at the end of the day, the Pioneer League understands what it is. They're not going to have great pitching in the Pioneer League. The ball is going to zoom. You're, the runs are going to be put up on the board. That's that that's not changing. So what? So I think the the pace is important because. I mean, Nick, as, as you well know, we've talked about it a lot on this show. For an independent league game, three hour, an average of three hours and 20 minutes, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Way too long. Way, way too long. It, there's families that are going to games, like I, I'll say, like even on like a, a weekend or a Friday night, three hours and 20 minutes. If you're expecting uh, like you know, kids who are maybe early middle school, late elementary school with their parents – to stay for a game that's three hours and 20 minutes, then you got something else coming because it's because yeah. no, they're not. Uh, and I think that's, it's really important to get. And because it is shown in minor league baseball, that it has worked. I think, uh, I, I think the pioneer league made a good decision here. Uh, I think the, the, the shift ban and listen, I've made my, my thoughts on the shift ban very clear that I'm not a fan of it. However, I think the high slice idea is interesting because it's not just all right. Here's a line, straight like straight yeah. from second base into center field. You can't be on this line because at the end of the day, what you're going to see in Major League Baseball with just that line that's just straight out uh, from the back of second base into center field, you're going to see teams. I guarantee you, put somebody right on the line, like just teetering on it, because they're going to try and find ways to get around it. But that whole pie slice idea. That's how you, if you actually want to keep people out of the middle of the diamond and like the kind of the whole, I mean, it sounds stupid, but the, the aesthetics of yeah. ground ball hit up the middle base hit, line drive up the middle base hit. And like you, people might think that listen to that and think that's stupid. But if, if you watch enough baseball and you're, you're so much, of course, and, and I'm only 22, but like, I can only imagine somebody who's been watching baseball for decades, like, and they just see, all right, ground ball up the middle base hit. Lodger with the middle, base hit. All of a sudden, there's someone standing there. I could aesthetically, that's weird, and it's kind of a. I think it's uh, it's something that I guess people don't talk about a lot, but I think that it's a very real thing uh, when it comes to watching baseball. People who traditionally watch baseball uh, that they want to see those balls up the middle be hits. Um, yeah, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, but I think that the pie slice idea is a much better way of doing it to keep defenders out of the middle of the field as opposed to just drawing a 2B line because uh, just a just a straight line because you're going to have people I guarantee you right on that line uh, that are getting ready to that are getting ready to play defense at that point uh, but the pie slice I do think is an interesting idea yeah I, I definitely agree with that I mean just because the pitch clock out of the way Fine, don't really carry the way. It doesn't really ever matter much in the end. And also, I don't think we're going to be real draconian about calling things if a pitcher goes 15 seconds as opposed to 14 seconds. I don't think we're going to be losing it on them for that. Uh, that said, back to the pie slice, I think it works better too. 
it kind of creates more of a, a neutral zone, almost a demilitarized zone where it's like, all right, no one goes in this area. And I think you're on something with the aesthetic of it where it's, you know, you there's certain things where you're used to it just, oh, okay, that's going to be a hit. Or it's just, it's weird to see it not be what you remember it being. So I definitely think you're onto something with the aesthetic part of that. That said, though, I really do, I do like the, the pie slice idea. If for nothing else, then it just, it feels better than just like an arbitrary don't cross second baseline. Like, it, it feels more official. And I think that's half the battle with some of this stuff. It's just making it feel more established, right? Like, the pie slice just feels slightly more established for whatever reason it may be. And it probably does a better job of accomplishing the goal. But again, you know, I my thoughts on the shift, like you have been noted before, which is you could put any sign of shifting rule you want on this level. It's not going to matter. There's not, it just, there's not much shifting. It's, there's no. a reason for it. So we'll see how it works, but I just, I don't know how it's going to go. It's, I don't think there's going to be any, the, I think the shift then in independent league baseball to me is totally irrelevant. Yeah. Because there's just, there's just, not, especially in a, in a league like the Pioneer League, there's just not enough sizable data for managers to feel good about um, about putting. What are you going to use? Like, all right, like this guy, we signed this rookie who played, who just finished playing Division One ball at like Utah or something. Are we going to use his splits from Utah, like to go into a heavy like a heavy shift on the left side? Like, no. So, uh, so I think uh, they can. Uh, the shift ban is what it is in, in the ball, and I don't think it makes any sort of difference. The pitch clock, I think, is a welcome change, uh, though, especially in a league like the Pioneer League. And I, and I think you'd agree, Nick. Three minutes, sorry, three hours and twenty minutes is way too, way too. Oh yeah, no, it's absolutely too long. I mean, even just selfishly from our perspective, it it makes it very difficult to cover that league when you have games that are already starting at like nine or ten o'clock at night on the East Coast. And then it's another three hours and 20 minutes before it's done. So now we're looking at like, you know, anywhere from about one o'clock to one thirty in the morning where most of these games are getting finished up. And I mean, that's just it's it's not tenable to really do anything with. I mean, like I can look at the score the following day, but if I have something to do in the morning, I I, I can't do that. Even the, some of the later American Association games are kind of tougher with an eight o'clock start, you know, so I can't even really. I, there's no way I can even really watch a Pioneer League game with uh, those kind of longer run times. Now, I'm not expecting to cut it down by like 50 minutes to two and a half hours in and out. You know, that's a bit ridiculous to expect that. But, you know, if they can even just knock down five or ten minutes, it would help on any level there. But, yeah, as far as sitting in, in a stands, I mean, three hours, 20 minutes is a bit longer. You know, it's the only thing that they have going for them is that it's a lot of offensive power in the Pioneer League. There's a lot of hits. There's a lot of runs scored. There is uh, high-energy plays being made a lot. So that is helpful for keeping attention to the casual. Um, but even still, I mean, three hours and 20 minutes is a long time to be sitting in a ballpark, especially uh, in, you know, I don't want to say the middle of nowhere, but uh, I don't think there's many massive population centers that make up the Pioneer League. So... Uh, yeah, uh, it is a very long time there, but yeah. So I think, uh, I, but overall, like the pitch clock rule, I think primarily did things right. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. So with that, we go on to Atlantic League happenings. We have three pieces of news in the Atlantic League before we get to our Atlantic League South review. 
Uh, let's get some of the smaller ones out of the way first, so that way we can get running with the big guns uh, shortly. So, first up, uh, we have one tryout to report on. I always like tossing the tryouts here, because I know we have a handful of players that listen, and I feel like it's important to throw it out to them, so that way they are aware of some options out there. And this option comes from the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. They're going to be holding a tryout on the 5th, of April at 10 a.m. This is going to be at their ballpark, Regency Furniture Ballpark, as a $100 fee. They are going to provide bats, balls, and helmets. Uh, Check-in is at 9, and uh, yeah, that is the tryout there, $100 fee uh, for that. And uh, yeah, that's something to look forward to. If you are a player and you're not signed in the next two months, there you go. There's an option for you. You'll see all these other teams uh, start to announce those uh, starts to announce those tryouts as well. So yeah, it's an opportunity if uh, people are interested. Exactly. So I like to toss that out there, and especially with pitchers, I would always encourage pitchers to go and try out for these kinds of things. Obviously, we know there's a lot of batting talent in the Atlantic League, but you also keep in mind pitching is always tough to come by, and you gotta look to see who knows who. In the independent world, a lot of people know each other and a lot of people will go, okay, I may not be able to sign this guy. I don't have the roster capacity for him or he's just not up to Atlantic League quality. But I know someone coaching in the Frontier League. I know someone coaching in the Pioneer League. I know someone coaching somewhere else. They would be interested. I think you'd be a good fit there. Let me send your information over to them. They'll get in touch with you. You may have a job there. So, yeah, you may not wind up pitching in Southern Maryland or anywhere in the Atlantic League, but you could wind up pitching in, say, Evansville. You may wind up pitching in Sussex County. You may wind up pitching, you know, in Ogden. You may, you'd you still find a way to have a job. So I would definitely recommend that. And also, most of these uh, tryout camps, it's more than $100. So that's not a terrible price. Yeah, for sure. Compared uh, compared to others, uh, yeah, they're like no four hundred, five hundred, six hundred. Yeah. So there's definitely exactly. that. If you're if you're interested in it, uh, go to the website indiebarreport.com. Go to show notes. Link will be available there at the bottom of the page under the episode two oh six tab. Uh, that said, we also have another member of the Atlantic League Silver Team. Uh, this one came up about an hour after we finished recording last week's episode, and. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty sizable one. This is one I would have liked to talk about last week, but we get to talk about him this week, so definitely still worth it. Glenn Murray has been named the first batter on the Silver Anniversary 25th year team. Uh, he played for the Nashua Pride from 1999 to 2006 and had a short comeback with the Bridgeport Bluefish in 2008. He was a five-time All-Star, two-time postseason All-Star, and a champion of the Atlantic League in the year 2000. He is also the reigning Atlantic League home run king, hitting over 150, 158 to be exact, home runs over the course of his career. He is third all-time in RBIs with 529, sixth in extra base hits with 299, seeing that annoys the hell out of me because I think he should be coming back just to get number 300, but that's neither here nor there, and ninth all-time in runs with 484 runs scored uh also he is one of three players with two or more 2020 seasons his came in 1999 and in 2000 he joins mike guyfoyle and tim kane on the team i also imagine being that it is friday morning 
after we get done recording sometime in the middle of this afternoon we will get the fourth member of this team as we have yet to get one this week and that's just kind of the way it goes when we record we can't have everything so we take what we can get exactly and i mean glenn murray is as big of a no-brainer as you could possibly get to put on this team just because of course look the how can you not have the alt the atlantic home king on there uh, but so, I mean, he had a, an incredible career and just consistently such a good player in the Atlantic league. And, and again, I mean, as the, with the, him being the Atlantic league home run King, just an absolute no brainer, uh, to put on this list. So good to see him get some recognition, even though I think, I think it's a super, super easy one. Uh, but yeah, he had a, he had a brilliant career with Nashua as, as, as well back in the early days of the, of the Atlantic league. So uh, so good to see those guys, especially early, getting the shine uh, that they deserve, even if they're not, you know, the big names of the Ricky Hendersons or the uh, the Canseco or like Jose Canseco. I, I don't know how much love Ozzy Canseco gets. Yeah, but I think. Uh, but yeah, I think Glenn Murray absolutely deserving. Uh, glad he's on this team, and you know, I'll hail the home run game. This is the kind of guy that this team is meant for. You know, a guy that in independent circles really well known. A guy that, yeah, a couple foreign stints. He was a fairly high draft pick, and he got to really play and dominate in a league that had a very, very high level of talent, a very high level of competition. That's exactly what this league was designed for, and this is what this team is designed to honor. And I mean, it's like you said, the accolades, you know, make him a natural fit here, and. I love seeing the guys from, you know, the late 90s, early aughts, those types of guys get honored and get put on this list. We know there's going to be guys that are more recent as well added as time goes on. I mean, like we know a Daryl Thompson and a Lou Ford are going to be added there. I think it's fairly safe to say uh, guys like a Joe Gannon and a Jimmy Hurst are going to be added on there as well. But Glenn Murray was a big name for a long time, and he is very well deserving of this spot. And I'm very curious to see the other 22 members of this team when they get announced who they're going to be. Because every time it's it's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. And it's kind of a, a blast from the past in a way. And so I always love uh, seeing who gets added. And Glenn Murray is definitely worthy of that honor. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Murray, yeah, Murray's so deserving. And, you know, glad to see those guys get their shine on this list. So congrats to him. Absolutely there. And so with that, we have one last piece of Atlantic League news before we go to our division review. And that is news that came in approximately five minutes before we started recording. So occasionally we do get Fair lucky. W. Yep. We already, Andy Ball w. Yep. Uh, we already appreciate you and Frederick for doing this for us. We know their manager is going to be Mark Minikazi, but now we know who their uh, hitting and pitching coaches will be. That would be the hitting coach of Aaron Eggleston and the pitching coach of Eli Villanueva. Uh, we will go through each of their accolades. I didn't really have time, as you could guess, to do any more research, any more writing down on accolades outside the press release. So we'll go with that. But we all kind of know Eggleston, longtime Atlantic leaguer, longtime Somerset Patriot, has an 
awful lot of accolades. Another guy that actually maybe named that uh, Silver Anniversary team as well. He certainly has a case. Uh, last year, he was with the Washington Wildlings in the Frontier League. Who, you know, we know how they did. We've gone over them before, and we actually went over them about a week and a half ago uh, on the sh- on the show. And so we know Aaron. We know what he, his deal is. Eli Villanueva, you'll probably remember him because he is now a player coach. Uh, he pitched last year for the Wild Things. Hence, that relation to Mark Minikazi and why he'd be on the staff again. He's going to be coming back. Uh, he had a good year last year. Uh, probably one of the better pitchers on a not-so-great team. And, uh, yeah, it definitely adds some experience in the Atlantic League. It adds a lot of weight to it, I'd also say, by having a a guy like Eggleston who's been there, done that all before. So uh, I'm not really sure how much we have to say about the coaching staff, but it is something that's worth mentioning. Yeah, I mean, uh, Villanueva, he's, a, uh, he's an arm that's, I mean, he's up 36 years old now. He's been around for a long time. Uh, and in indie ball minor league, he's pitched in Taiwan and Mexico and every, everywhere you could possibly uh, pitch outside of maybe like Japan or Korea. But I mean, yeah, Vienna Wave is a veteran. He's, he's a perfect option for the um, to be a player coach just because he's he's been around. And he can still give you some starts uh, as well. So, yeah, I like it for, for Vienna Wave and Eggleston, Somerset Patriot legend. So I, uh, I'd love to hear his name still around as well. Yeah, definitely. Villanueva is the guy that definitely has a lot of decals in the suitcase, which is always fun to see. And, you know, having legends of the league always come back in, not Lexington kind of legends, but, you know, the, the player type legends, the people, is always fun to see as well. I don't really have too much else left to add. Obviously, there's a, some coaching experience here, and as a player coach, we kind of know how that deal goes. It's, you know, you're coaching but you're also still staying active in the game and it takes a little bit of time before you kind of get used to that role. I know TJ White up in Quebec's kind of taking a similar role there. God's very beloved up there as well. So it'd be interesting to see some of these newer player coaches and how they do this year. So, And so on that note, we will switch over to our Atlantic League review. We're going to go over the Atlantic League South this week. Same deal as the past three weeks. We take a division. We go back, we listen to the preview episode, write down our thoughts on that, and then we critique our thoughts at the time. And then we also give commentary on how they actually did this year, review everything. You know the deal. If you've been listening, you know what the deal is. So we're going to go in that same order. If you want to go back and listen to what we can in April, you can do that is episode 163 if you want to listen to that. Uh, that said, let's get going. It's going to be High Point, Gaston, or High Point, Charleston, Gastonia, Lexington, Wild Health, in that order. Uh, so, High Point kicking it off. They were coming into 2022, 64 and 55, a very successful club in the two years they had played prior. And we were kind of saying that this is going to be a good batting team. There's tons of talent. The pitching was something that we were questioning. We weren't totally sold on it, but we still were convinced that this was going to be a top team, a title contender in the end. And they wound up being 71 and 61, a wildcard team. Better in the first half than the second half, about a seven-win swing on that. But even still, they won the wild card. They got into the postseason. They did fairly well. We're not responding. So I hope I didn't lose too much of this. 
this recording just does not want to cooperate today, and I am very much annoyed about that, but hey, that's life for you. And yeah, so they made the postseason, lost in the final, but I'd still say we were right about them being a title contender, and certainly in the first half of the year, they were looking like the team that we kind of built them as. So, yeah. Right, and and that makes sense because, hey, the Indie ball team, breaking news, indie ball teams change throughout the year, especially a team like High Point, who has had a lot of guys picked up. Um, they're definitely in the top part of the league when it comes to the amount of guys picked up and guys that they've had to replace. And, you know, really since they had, since their inaugural season, they've done a really good job with that. Um, and so High Point, uh, the first half, they were really good. Uh, they were a really good team in the first half. I mean, Gastonia was otherworldly. We'll obviously have plenty of time to talk about them. But I think uh, with that, when they started to lose some guys, and that's kind of what I would attribute it to, they were pretty mediocre uh, in the second half. And honestly, went on a run to get uh, to get to within two games under 500. Uh, and we're still able to clinch uh, the we're still able to clinch that wild card spot. But hey, once it came down to the postseason, I mean they they did a great job and they obviously taken down Gastonia in the, in the playoff series. Um, but hey, I mean High Point they continued to be a consistent contender uh, really since their franchise was was founded. They on the field they've been terrific uh, and they. Still have to, they still don't have a championship to show for it, but they got close. Unfortunately, just ran into a, a buzzsaw uh, of a barnstormers club uh, that we that we talked about a lot last week. But uh, they they ran into a red hot team at, at the wrong time and got swept. But hey, they still you know they took down their rival in the in that first playoff series. And I mean overall, just uh, I think we were right to say that another really good year for High Point. Yeah, it was definitely a year where. The pitching kind of solved itself. There was definitely some guys that we had pegged that didn't really last the whole way. But overall, it's still a team that you could tell is really guided by the coaching staff it has. It's a very strong coaching staff uh, on that team. And it just kind of keeps moving. They find ways. And they are certainly a stronger club, at least on the field. And it certainly seems off the field as well uh, in this league. And I don't think they've actually put up a losing record yet. Which is something that's extremely impressive no. to see. No, they haven't. I they haven't, and that's especially for a team that came in and, and hey, when you hire a guy like uh, when you hire a guy like Jamie Keith, uh, you know that he that he knows how to build a successful ball club. It doesn't matter what uh, what league he's in, uh, and with all the, the great years with Rockland and the championships with Rockland, he's brought that to high point. He's done an unbelievable job. Him and that whole staff. There with with Frank Viola, Albert Gonzalez as well. Uh, they've they've done a great job and uh, and continuing to build consistent winners there. Definitely, and they're definitely a team to watch going forward. I mean, they always manage to do something that makes you look and go, okay, take note of them. And I'm very curious right. to see how it's going to be this year. What's what the team going to look like this year? Because they always seem to be the new consistent in the South Division. So definitely something. Uh, to isn't, watch. It, isn't it so crazy like, yeah. that the Atlantic League has had so much turnover that the uh, that by far the longest sta- the longest tenured team in the southern in the South Division is the High Point Rockers. How old does that make you feel? It makes me feel horrible, to be honest. Like I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, like it's not good when we're looking as a league. Like Long Island being the oldest, not great, not terrible. 
And then we go like, oh yeah, then there's Lancaster and Yerk. Those are the two that are the second and third longest tenured teams in this league. And I'm just looking at it thinking, this is not great. This is not ideal uh, for the situation as it exists today. You know, in Southern Maryland, not far behind there. It's just, it's very odd. I think I've said it before in the show where it's like, you know, these are not a lot of the teams I remember. In fact, none of them really are. I'm used to having a much more northeastern-centric league, and now this is very much more of a mid-Atlantic league, which is very interesting of a shift, you know. But, hey, it's the way it goes. But what also goes is the Charleston Dirty Birds, and they're up next. They were 58-62 and 62 in 2021. Coming into 22, we felt like it was a pretty mediocre lineup. Didn't really have much power, but maybe, you know, kind of, a bunch of contact hitters can make it work. A good rotation, but overall, kind of a second-tier team. We didn't expect much from them. They didn't really give us much. 53-79, and 26-40 in the first half. A slight one-game improvement to 27-39 and 39 in the second half. Still missed the playoffs. Still an underwhelming year. All in all, not, uh, not terribly different than what we expected out of the Dirty Birds. Yeah, they... The, the record kind of speaks for, it, for itself here, and offensively, they really, really struggled. Um, they did not have much thump in their lineup uh, at all, uh, and pitching-wise, they they're near the in the bottom third of the league as well, uh, as well in ERA, just above York, uh, York and Wild Health, which is, when you talk about pitching, not a great t- group to be linked in with. So, yeah, I think... I think a lot of the problems, and there are problems, of course, everywhere for Charleston when it comes to, you know, how how their roster ended up shaking out. But offensively, they just really struggled. I mean, when you have a team OPS under 700, especially the way that, uh, especially the way that offense was being put up in the Atlantic League last year, that's just not going to cut it. Uh, and it's tough to dig yourself out of a hole like that. So uh, they were. You know, pretty consistently uh, a bottom tier team the most for most of the season, especially in the division when you're playing uh, teams like when you're playing when they played teams like High Point and Gastonia a lot. It just, they just weren't good enough, uh, really, to be any sort of threat, and, and they struggled offensively, pitching, and in pretty much every aspect of the game. Uh, and just did not, especially in that lineup, just did not have have much thump, uh, and it really hurt them. It definitely did. And I feel bad, too, because I like Billy Horn. I think he's one of the nicer guys in the game. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm really happy to see him get the manager job. And I'm not sure if this is really an indictment on his ability to manage, because I don't think it is. We've seen him be, be successful in that kind of a role before, certainly. But at the same point in time, though, like, this just was not a good team from day one. It wasn't. And I wonder how much of that is roster construction, how much of that is upper-level management. Because if you noticed, and you'll kind of be able to tell when we get to the last two teams here, all the Andy Shea teams did not have good years. They all were, roughly speaking, in the same record area. They were all within about uh, a handful of games of each other. Only one managed to go above 500, too. So, you know, I wonder if that has something to do with it, too. I wonder if it's just a difficulty procuring players. I wonder if there was a difficulty financially. I wonder what the what went wrong behind the scenes. Because obviously on the field, which is the main point of this, we could tell what, what went wrong. There really wasn't anything that went terribly right. I mean, when you're only winning about 25 games in a half, it's not great. So... 
you know, there's obviously a lot that didn't work out there, but ultimately in the end, I just, it feels very disappointing of a season and it felt like there was points to save it, but at no point was I ever, even in the preseason, really optimistic about them either. So maybe there really wasn't any time to save it. And it's just kind of one of those things you say after the disaster, like there was things we could have done, but really nowhere along the way was there anything you could do. You bring up a good point about the kind of the the last ownership and and Andy Shea and uh, just neither it's it's just a fact that uh, that they did not uh, remember Andy's still the not good yeah Andy's still the owner over in Charleston oh true 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 he just doesn't so, have Lexington and the other you know, weird thing may, maybe I think it, that could uh, that could be a benefit with all of this focus on Charleston now. Again, you don't really know how much uh, could have played a role in last year, but yeah, they certainly got to switch things up because the their roster really, really struggled. It definitely did. But uh, one that didn't struggle was the Gastonia Honey Hunters. They were coming into the 2022 season off of their first season, which they posted a 54 and 66 record. We were saying that this was going to be a much improved team. But we explicitly said that they were likely a 500 team, a good pitching team, but it's a band box park. You don't really know. And they're not on the level of high point and the next two teams we're going to talk about. We kind of put those other teams a level ahead. Or at the very least, there was two teams we clearly put ahead of everybody else. Um, that clearly was wrong. We were very much wrong on uh, Gastonia as they went 88 and 44. Uh, both halves winning over 40 games, 45 in the first half, 43 in the second half, and they easily won both halves of the season. But they were eliminated in round one to high points. So on some level, I suppose we were correct in that they weren't on high points level, but that's because for the regular season, they were just a step ahead. And as you always like to say, well, baseball playoffs are a crapshoot because you play so few games in such a short period of time to determine which team is better in a sport where you play over 100 games in a season. So it seemed like that's what happened here with Gastonia. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love the saying that, uh, that, that baseball is a crapshoot because it, it really is. So I think that um, I don't think that the playoff, of course, like the playoff loss was, was disappointing for Gastonia, but that shouldn't take away from I mean, what a major turnaround that they had in in their second year, and they they just totally changed everything they did. They hit for power, but more importantly, and I think this is the stat that really speaks uh, to what kind of turnaround Gastonia had last year was the stolen bases. I oh, mean, yeah. just absolutely insane. I, record they setting, record setting stolen base uh, season stolen base wise. But to put it in perspective, Gastonia had 305 uh, for the year. Second place was Charleston at 193. And there was a team, for example, York had 92. So, uh, I mean, Gastonia, but that's not to say they didn't hit for power, because they did. Uh, they they did, and they led They led in OPS uh, team-wise for the year. They're, they were the best pitching in the league as well. Uh, just overall, just an awesome turnaround for them. I can't wait to see what they have in store for them this year. But just 
the the turnaround uh, w- was incredible, and not just with the roster, just the style of play and the way they played the game. I think is the most encouraging thing to see more than any sort of record uh, could say, because the way that they, they were aggressive, they pushed the pace uh, of the games and they just uh, had a great, great season. And, you know, unfortunately they didn't go their way in the playoffs, but that's, that's baseball. And that's kind of what you're dealing with. And uh, as you said, Nick, a game where uh, you play 162 times in a year at the MLB level and, it all comes down to a best of five, which is it's just so hard. And against, of course, a, a high point team that's good as well. So, uh, but just a terrific, terrific year for Gastonia. It absolutely is. And what what really gets it for me is it's not just you know on the field turnaround. We've seen things like that before. Maybe not to this level, but we've certainly seen turnarounds like that before. It's on and off the field, complete turnaround. We went from, you know, it being an actively hostile place people did not want to go to, to being an organization that seemingly is pretty well ran, at the very least does not allow it to leak onto the field. Like you said, the stolen bases are fantastic. They were able to create offense in a lot of different ways. The power is not so much surprising because of the dimensions of the field, but a lot of the other ways they're putting up offense, more than it being effective, it was also fun. It was enjoyable to watch. It was entertaining baseball to see. So it was all in all just a really complete and a really fun team to watch. And when you're winning games at a two to one rate, I mean, that that's unparalleled. It's one of the best seasons in the history of the Atlantic League. And just to go from a complete and utter just clown show to, you know, one of the best teams in the history of the league is a phenomenal turnaround, which we haven't really seen on on this kind of a, a level before. And I'm just, I'm kind of taken back by that. I think, honestly, a lot of the reason we were saying this 500 was all that the 21 season was that first year getting off the ground. We didn't really know what it was, and it didn't really turn out to be, you know, what it needed to be. So I think that was kind of leaking in, plus second-year team, you never know. But this this just came out of nowhere. And I mean, you we ran through everything that they were leading in. They were getting guys picked up. They were doing everything right. And it shows. It really does. Yeah, it shows. And just it's just amazing that not only did they just get better roster wise, just they totally changed the way that they played the game. And that's just not something you see in just uh, and yeah. they can just turn around in a snap of a finger. Yeah, with the so, same staff too. Like they didn't change yeah. the manager or anything. Nope, uh, and not at all. And that first season could not have gone much worse. I mean, the only way this second season could have gotten better, could have gone better, is was winning a championship at the end, which didn't happen. But they're certainly on, on a good path. It'll, it's it going to be very interesting to see whether that's just a one-year blip and year one was more like what they'll be, or uh, or if they're really starting to build a power in the South Division. It's gonna, it's gonna be, they're going to be probably the most interesting team to watch, I think, in the South Division next year. Definitely. Definitely going to be a very interesting team to watch. And that North Carolina rivalry is going to be something that's extremely interesting and fun to see. 
uh, going forward there. But uh, we have to go a little bit further west for this next one. In fact, we're staying in the same location for the, for the last two. But we're starting with the Lexington Legends, a team that was 500, 16, 16, 21. Although that is extremely misleading to the kind of quality of team they were. They won the league uh, in 21 as well. So we were expecting more of the same. There was a lot of talent on this team, former major league stars, a lot of really well-known, really talented Atlantic League guys. It's a very deep team. We essentially locked them into a playoff spot because we just could not conceive of a team being this talented and missing the postseason. And then they wound up winning only 56 games, winning 23 in the first half. Then they managed to fight to a 500 record in the second half. Missed out on the postseason entirely. Uh, we kind of whiffed on this one, but there was an awful lot going on in Lexington this past year. So that was probably a non-insignificant reason for a lot of their struggles. Listen, I... I don't think that I still think roster wise they should not have been twenty games under five hundred, and I'll go to the grave on that. But I gotta say, like, it's just they kind of built that they had a lot of talent. They kind of built their lineup. I'll start with the lineup because then the pitching won't take very long. I can assure you. Uh, and yeah. just offensively, I feel like they had talent, but they it kind of built their team around home run or strikeout. Uh, and they were they were second or yeah. uh, or third in the league in strikeouts uh, behind Wild Health and York, uh, both teams who it also built their lineup in a, in a similar way. Although Wild Health lineup yeah. was actually good, they led the league in home runs. Of course, Courtney Hawkins a massive reason for that uh, with his forty eight home run season. And I just think there there wasn't. Uh, I think the lineup should have carried them to more wins. Uh, but they did build it around a lot less around athleticism and more around power, uh, which is fine. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it, it can hurt you when you're going cold. At the end of the day, Lexington only hit 259 as a team, uh, which wrecks them, wrecks them third to last uh, in the in the league. So they didn't get on base a whole lot, uh, hit for a lot of power, which is great. But solo home runs don't exactly help you. Uh, you know, you know. I think back to a, an MLB game last year, and sorry to go off. Yeah. Like, it was just a great example. I think it was the A's and the Angels. The A's beat the Angels eight to seven, and the Angels hit seven solo home runs, <laughs> which was just it happened yeah. in the summer, and I just thought it was hilarious and wanted to bring it up because yeah. it kind of brings up the point that like I I'm not a guy who's going to sit up here and grumble about home runs and strikeouts. But at the same time, if you're just hitting solo home runs, you're not really helping yourself. Uh, and in at the end of the day, and I think it's it's apparent because hey, Lexington did they hit home runs? They sure did. Did uh, did they strike out? They sure did. You know where they were at in runs? They were uh, ten team. They were fourth to last in the league. So they were they were behind York, behind Southern Maryland, behind High Point. So at the end of the day, yeah, there were seven out of seven out of ten teams. For in in runs scored, so I think that tells you enough about that the offense just didn't drive. They didn't drive in enough runs, despite the power that they had. And on the pitching end, it was just a a, a dumpster fire of epic proportions. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny when you think about it too, because we were thinking this team was going to be loaded on every aspect of it, and certainly they had a lot going for them. That's there's no denying that. But like you said. A very one-track form of offense. We compare that to a team like Estonia that had power, but they also were more than willing to play small ball, and they were more than willing to win that way. And they were constructed in a way where, you know, it didn't matter what you did. 
they were still going to find a way to score runs. When you're building a team where it's like, okay, we want the firework shot, we want the home run ball, and that's what our primary focus is going to be, or at the very least, you build a team where that's really all you can rely on, it's going to be a rough time, like you said. The pitching wasn't there, and that's a major problem, too. I mean, if you're if you're relying on one source of income, essentially, as far as run support goes, and then you're bleeding income, you know, allowing a lot of runs, it's not really going to go well for you unless you have some of the best power hitters on earth. Yeah. And you're hitting, you know, six or seven shots a game. And even then, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to give up six or seven runs than it is to score six or seven runs, you know? So, the overall, the team just was really flawed. Uh, you get the sense that the turf wasn't great. The mound was definitely a problem, too, and it definitely scared away a lot of pitching talent. There's no doubt Good, about yeah. that. Yeah, most of that baseball ops department disappeared. You never really know what you're going to get. It's just, it wasn't a great year on or off the field. It felt like there really was no structure, no leadership, nothing really there. And it kind of showed. And I'm I'm going to give PJ a lot of credit for holding this team together for as long as yeah. he managed to do it. Because a lot of the things that were happening as far as the organization is concerned would have been very difficult for any manager to handle. You really do think, oh, okay. We'll be all right. We'll we'll get by on talent alone, and then when the talent doesn't come through and they're not as talented as you thought, it kind of bottoms out, and that's what happens here. And it's just extremely disappointing to see, as we really did expect a lot out of this team. A lot of form, like like I said, a lot of former major league talent, a lot of guys that are really well known. But like you said, Courtney Hawkins is really the only guy that I think we could honestly say had a standout year. So, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment, Nick, that it's not – I wouldn't put a lot of it on PJ because I think there was just so many obstacles that were in his way that made it difficult to uh, that made it difficult to have success this year, and he kept the team together. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that – I'm glad he's kind of got a fresh start a, after that last year because I, I do really do think he's a good manager, and uh, I'm I, – I just don't think a lot of that can fall on him. Uh, just because there was so many, so much adversity that he had to face, and the team had to face, and and, and it all showed into making a, a really rough year for for Lexington following up their their championship year. It definitely was. It was a year where not a lot went right, and that's why you know I give PJ a lot of credit for keeping the ship together. But uh, on that note, we go over to the final team that in the Atlantic League we have for the review, which is of course. The Wild Health Genome did not play in 21 because they were a one-and-done type of team. They were 67 and 65 on the year, pretty much 500 in each half. They were four games over 500 in the in the first half, yep, and then a couple games under in the second half. Missed the postseason. Coming into the year, though, we thought they were a fairly average team with a few great pieces, but like as a fairly average team, certainly kind of straddling the line between that upper and middle tier of teams in the South Division. Uh, I was a bit higher on them than you were. The main concern was the pitching is good, but are they going to be able to put up runs? And it's kind of funny. They Whoops. were, yeah, it was kind of the other way around. 
It was absolutely the other way around. I mean, they ended up being a, an average team at two games over 500. So I guess overall we got that right. But uh, yeah, it was t- the complete opposite because the offense was really good. Uh, second in the second in the league in, in OPS as well under Gastonia as well. But pitching was also second to last. So in, in ERA only in front of Lexington. So yeah, the, they really struggled pitching wise. But I, I think especially for a one and done team, I, I thought they they did pretty well, and I think Mark Minakazi did a pretty good job. And of course, he had to deal with a lot of the same problems that Lexington did, uh, and and he did a, he did a solid job putting together a, a decent roster. So pitching was definitely the pitching was really rough for Wild Health, though. That's that's the big that was the big problem there. But the offense was was quite good. Yeah, it definitely was. There was definitely a lot of guys that came up there, and I really was believing in this team. I thought they may be, you know, a a possible playoff team. I thought they were going to make a push for that, and they did for a short little bit there, but in the end, they, they kind of petered out, died on the vine. Uh, a lot of the same issues that, have, like you said, that affected Lexington affected them, so I'm not going to rehash any of that, and I don't think I have too much else left to really add on their front there, but I will say this much. I'm interested to see what Mark Minikazi does in Frederick obviously ran sure. through his staff now. So if he was able to do the kind of job he did in this shit show, uh, I want to see what he's going to be able to do in a situation that presumably is going to be a bit better constructed, you know, this sure. year. So I'm very interested to see what Wild Health can ultimately do in the end. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all there really is to it. The only thing we have left to really do for this review is just to quickly go over one thing, which is one of us did have a award winner in this division. You had, uh, well, the Jerry Downs from High Point as kind of the player of the year. That didn't really work out, but the player of the year did come from the South Division. So there's that. And we do have playoff teams we have to run through, but we both were were picking the same two teams. We both had High Point and Lexington. I had High Point winning the championship. You had Lexington winning the championship. So while... You kind of won the North Division. I think I kind of won the South Division a little bit. You did. Neither yes, one of sure. yeah, neither one of us were exactly right, but uh, I was just slightly lesser wrong. So, uh, yeah, that is the Atlantic League South review. That is the Atlantic League review. Both of them are done. Next week, we will move on to the American Association, and we will hopefully uh, not have the tech issues we had this week. You probably will have noticed in the editing process There's probably some bits of audio that didn't sound quite right, and apologies for that, but it's been a very uphill battle recording today, so we will leave it at that and not go any further behind the curtain. So uh, to avoid tempting fate, we'll get the plugs in, we'll get them out of here, and then uh, we'll move on to next week where hopefully we won't have these issues. Uh, So yeah, let's get those plugs. If you want to Find the show, you can find it uh, just about anywhere you find podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you can. We're going to have a bonus episode out in the middle of the week. That's going to be a review of the new Miles Wolf book. Yes, that Miles Wolf, the guy that, you know, kind of started all the independent baseball. He has a, uh, a new book out called A Bulldozer on Home Plate. I, we got an advanced copy, a screener copy from uh, the publisher, McFarland Publishing. Appreciate them sending that. So we've read it. We're going to review it. 
and there'll be a bonus episode and there'll also be a written review and possibly a YouTube video. I'm still on the fence about doing the YouTube video because it's a lot of work for honestly fairly little gain. So you'll definitely get a written copy and a bonus show. YouTube is pending, but you can find that written review on uh, the website IndieBallReport.com under the articles tab. That should be up either by the time you're listening or it should be up uh, day of listening. So probably this weekend, it's essentially a lock. I just have to write the thing, but it's mostly done. Uh, that said, you could also find the show on social media, uh, at Twitter at IndieBallPod and on Instagram at ALPB underscore news and IndieBallReport there. Uh, so be sure to follow both of those platforms. Uh, a lot of fun stuff being tweeted out, a lot of information uh, being posted on both. Uh, that being said, do I have anything else left to add this week? Only thing I have to add, I'll keep it quick. College baseball starts this weekend. Really exciting. Very, very exciting. Uh, I can imagine, especially I imagine Hofstra has a decent team this year. Yes. Yeah, they do. They're trying to repeat being CAA champions, brought back, bringing back the same squad, pretty much the same squad. But I don't know, a lot went right for them last year. I don't know. We'll see if they have this similar magic in them that they did last year. So we'll, we'll have to see. But they got some tough competition in the conference as well. So uh, they're they're opening up down Fort Myers where it's a lot warmer than it, than it is up here. So hey, It's nearly uh, 60 degrees up here. It's it's toasty. Uh, well, it won't be tonight. It, it won't be uh, tonight or Friday if you're the last night if you're listening on Saturday. But, uh, but yeah, I'm really excited for college baseball now. My, one of my favorite favorite days of the year, college baseball opening day. Yeah. All right. And, uh, yeah, I don't really think I have anything left to add outside of just uh, I have a lot of work left to do. And I was working on that book thing until, like, 3 in the morning. So I'm kind of tired. So I'm going to leave it at that because I'm going to have a show to edit, a bonus episode to record, a review to write, and then just a bunch of other stuff. So... I'm going to leave it at that. Not nearly as uh, exciting, entertaining, or positive as Will's thing, but uh, it's where we're at. So uh, with that said, and nothing else left to add, until next week, don't forget to play ball.